For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So welcome, everyone. Co uh, Carol Orson is a member of our board, a longtime practitioner uh, here and uh, in California at Tassajara and Green Gulch, but also uh, co lives in Cleveland uh, and uh, is a wonderful uh, veteran practitioner. And I'm looking forward to her talk tonight. Thank you, Co. Um, thank you, Teg, and um, thank you for inviting me. Um, this is always a really special opportunity. Um, just to prepare you for this Dharma talk, um, it's it's a little bit scattershot around a theme. Um, so you can think of it as a cross between a Dharma talk and a tome poem, perhaps. <laughs> so, um, so let me just start out is the title is Zen as a body practice. And um, I um, have been a dance practitioner and in many ways dance is uh, uh, fulfills a religious function for me. It uh, allows me to know the unity between myself and others. And it's through the body that um, many of the teachings in, in Zen Buddhism makes sense, uh, fundamentally makes sense for me. And um, I'd like to, to start by talking a little bit about um, one of the, I think, the real delusions in our society um, that's come through um, Western culture. and. Uh, it's in the Enlightenment period, uh, ironically enough, the Enlightenment period, um, there was uh, the idea of rationality was really privileged, that the body was seen as suspect, um, that the, there's the mind-body problem that was uh, brought apart, brought up um, by a number of thinkers, including Descartes. Um, Descartes, who famously has said, um, I think, therefore I am. And uh, if you want, I'll tell you my favorite D Descartes joke uh, during the comment and question period, if you remind me. But Buddhism speaks to every culture it comes to. So it, it started in India, has moved throughout Asia in the you know late 50s or in the 50s. It started coming over here probably before that. But um, Suzuki Roshi came at the in the, the late 50s, I believe. So one of the brilliant things about Buddhism is that it is flexible and it speaks to the culture um, wherever it arrives. And the culture, certainly that I was raised in, the Judeo-Christian, um, the American culture, um, did in many ways um, consider the body inferior. There's a 
an advertising culture where the the body was something that you had to hide or or remake or or things like that. And I'd like to um, to bring in a little piece of a talk that Marion Woodman gave. Um, Marion Woodman is a Jungian analyst, a Canadian Jungian analyst. She's worked a lot with people who have addictions. And um, I'm just going to play a minute and a half of her talk from holding the tension of the opposites, um, this Jungian phrase um, where you, you're not trying to mush opposites together, but you, you hold them both. And she talks about, um, and you'll hear, she talks about the idea of spirit as privileged from, from the body. What I'm going to be speaking about is the split between spirit and matter. For centuries, the Judeo-Christian tradition has been splitting spirit and matter. Going way back to the story of the Garden of Eden, matter, which is the Latin word for mother, was associated with Eve, with the serpent, with evil, with greed, with lust, hate, jealousy, all these things that are not compatible with the good life. Spirit, on the other hand, was lifted up as the great ideal which we should all be trying to achieve. Even in New Age thinking, light and the ideal can be very seductive. There's a, a, an energy that would like to transcend this terrible earth. And in my work with addicts, I see again and again that the addict is trying to escape his own or her own humanity. So later on in the talk, she talks, she also um, mentions that um, spirit, when it is allowed, when it is just allowed to float around in a disembodied way, it can be murderous because it is judgmental and self-righteous. And, um, and she identifies our, our, our tendency to reject the body and the body processes. Now, I bring this up in part because I think Zen is, is or at least has the capacity to be an antidote to this, that Zen itself is a, is a body practice. And, um, and I'd like to quote, um, well, I just want to hold up um, a little piece of the Sandokai of the spiritual source shines clear in the dark. The branching streams flow on in the dark and in, in the light. Uh, the branching streams flow on in the dark so that both dark and lightness is fundamental to, to our practice and our understanding. So um, I talked a little bit about dance and for, for me, Sashin is a lot like a dance. Um, our ceremony is a lot like a dance. We, we know our steps 
and we work together and we know ourselves as a larger unit because of the beauty of knowing exactly where we're supposed to be together. And um, Aldous Huxley once observed, ritual dances provide a religious experience that seems more satisfying and convincing than any other. It is with their muscles that humans most easily obtain knowledge of the divine. And um, again, a little piece of the Sandakai, interacting brings involvement. Otherwise, each keeps his place. And that's, again, a beautiful quality for me of Sashin or coming together in Zen practice, that there's always interaction, but there's also everybody has their place. Um, and it's, it's both and. It's not you have to separate. It's not this false separateness. But it's also not a, a mingling merging. Um, I'd like to, to also share a quote um, from Tigan's Green Gulch talk um, from the spring of 2003, where he quotes Dogen in a letter uh, it's, uh, to his students, uh, uh, Ahogo, I, it, I believe it's called. And uh, he starts with um, the whole body just as it is. Who would get stuck in any place? With the entire body familiar, how could we find our way back to a source? Already beyond the single phrase, how could we be troubled by different vehicles? When you open your hand, it is just right. When your body is activated, it immediately appears. And um, he, he goes on, and this is in, 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 he's sitting in Green Gulch, which Dylan so beautifully evoked for us um, last Monday. Um, the tradition of Zazen, of sitting meditation, what we do here is actually about just being present in this life, in this body, in this mind, and becoming very familiar with how it is to be this person. Um, with, the whole, with the entire body familiar, how could we find our way back to a source? And, and I just love that there's no, you don't have to find yourself back way back to a source be, when you make this whole body familiar. It is the source. So there, you don't have to keep seeking it. You're familiar with this being. Um, and Tigan continued, it's just about being familiar with this in the entire body this body on our cushion, this body in this sendo, this body of Green Gulch and of the waves down the valley on Muir Beach. And I want to add that it's the body of the bell that Dylan sat next to um, when he had the rare moments of sunshine during this last uh, intensive. Um, it's the body of the tree that used to hold the bell, that th there was a new um, bell tower was constructed. And that's where Dylan loved to, to sit. But in the earlier days, the bell hung from a tree, an old, beautiful tree that um, was deformed by the weight of the bell. And um, the branch was held down, partly cracked. Um, and I heard a story that continues to move in me about when Suzuki Roshi's son came 
for the dedication ceremony of the new bell tower. Um, after the ceremony was over, people were looking around for um, Suzuki Roshi's son and they found him by the tree where the bell had been. And he was just standing with the tree um, giving gratitude or that's what I, whoever told me interpreted what he was doing. Um, and it reminds me that light and dark oppose one another, like the right, the front and the back foot and walking. Each of the myriad things has its merit expressed according to its function in place. And that tree had great merit. Um, it had a beautiful function um, of holding the bell. Um, it had its place. And, and I also think the tree suffered because of its function of what it was asked to do. And one of my strongest memories at Green Gulch um, involved that bell and that tree. And uh, the community, it was during Veterans Day, and there was this old monk. Um, I believe his name is Myoyu. He's uh, a, an, a, an older British gentleman who had served in the Navy. And I was sitting in the, um, the eating area on break. And he came to Reb and asked if, if we could um, ring the bell 108 times for um, Veterans Day. And uh, Reb said that was a good idea, that, that we should do that. So Veterans Day came and during work period, so it's 108 ringing of the bell, again, this huge metal bill, which I'd never touched. I mean, again, it was, I'd, I'd not worked on the Doanrio or, or anything at that point. And it was, it was intimidating. I mean, it, the spirit of the bell is, is pretty impressive. And the ringing of the bell, there was like 50 seconds between strikes. So 108 times was a, a fairly long amount of time. And so during our work break, people would come down and line up and, and ring it, you know, two or three times. And then the next person would come. So the whole community was sending out this remembrance of veterans, of people who were what we could just say, oh, they're breaking the first precept. Um, they're breaking all sorts of precepts. But instead, we were calling them home. And my father fought in World War II, as did four of my four uncles, um, Uncle Earl, um, Uncle Chris, Uncle Thorvald, and Uncle John, all fought in World War II. And including the next generation, my brother went into the army and my other brother went into the merchant Marines. So, and I became, you know, a peacenik, you know, so there was this, a certain tension in the family, but the fact that we could include them who with their bodies did things that we might consider wrong, we might consider right. I mean, World War II was a pretty incredibly dire time um so that was a body practice with the resonant 
resonating of the bell with the honoring of people that continues in, in me. So the trees and branches share the essence. Um, another reading that's come to me as I've been contemplating this is from um, Hongshu. Uh, we do the uh, decolonizing um, uh, group on Friday mornings. And uh, before we read whatever text we're working on, we're working with on um, uh, Zenju Earthland Manual's book right now, her first book. But the first book that I know of, um, but we read, read Hongsha and it kind of randomly arises. And this last one was the original dwelling, but I, I, I'd like to include the first, the last two lines from the, the previous um, part. Um, Only in this wholeness are things not isolated. Penetrated vision brings, brings the opening to view the total body. So again, the body practice that's, that's involved. And then the original dwelling, um, Hongsha uh, wrote, a person practicing the way subtly goes beyond words and thoughts, instantly authentic. One is on the affirmed path and does not attach to reasoning. And I just want to jump in here. It doesn't say you don't use reasoning. It's you don't attach to it. There's something more than reasoning. Um, that that we connect to. Extensively intermingled, the moon flows in all the waters. The wind blows through the supreme emptiness, naturally without touching or obstructing things. Transcendent illumination and function are only illuminating without stains and functioning without leaving traces. Then you can enter samadhi in every sense dust and gather the 10,000 forms in the single seal. So the sense dust is what opens us to samadhi. That samadhi is not just floating someplace else. There's this incorporated, incorporal thing that we enter through. Um, and then also that we gather the 10,000 forms, all the other bodies, I think of forms meaning bodies into um, the single seal, which is this non-permanent self that we attach to, but, you know, isn't really there. So just wanted to go over a few more of the body practices in uh, Zen tradition. Sitting meditation is obviously a body um, posture uh, is a body um, tradition. Uh, the the discomforts of the body, I think, is part of it. Also, to be able to sit and be present with the unpleasant um, opens us to something. Is that there's a certain tension of relaxation and and um, great effort um, that that we aspire to. Something else can come through. Um, Art has always been a part, uh, calligraphy, um, poetry, these different forms that, that come out, which uh, art, I think, create, since it creates a form, is a body of self. Um, the calligraphy is the interaction of the physical ink on the physical paper through movement um, of the body. 
uh, there's work practice. Uh, I, I love that we rake and that we chop vegetables and that that is as Zen as sitting or contemplating a koan. Uh, being part of the Doan Rio is a physical practice. The, the ring of the bell, the vibrations that are physical, touch our physical form. Um, I so loved listening to the Han today. I, I think this is one of the first Hans that I've heard uh, since the pandemic. I'm usually putting the baby to bed, so I'm, I'm not joining you very often, but just to hear that Han was just wonderful. Bowing is a physical practice that, that encompasses everything. Um, it puts us in rela- right relation. Um, so those are all of the positive things. I think that there are some dangers. Um, if you have this unconscious bias that the body is, is not a good thing. Um, if you come to Zen, you can get infatuated with the, um, with the wonderful paradoxes or the beauty, beautiful writing or the concept of nirvana, you know, that somehow I get blown out and I don't have to deal with this thing anymore. So I think that's a misconception, but it's a misconception that many of us have had, do have, have seen. Um, But in my experience, it's only through the body and opening to the stuff that's messy or unpleasant or, awkward or wrong, um, that, um, that I can find something that's true and authentic and, and beyond. I mean, we, we, you know, gate, gate, paragate, gone, gone, gone beyond. The only way you can go beyond is by really embracing this moment, this being, and I'd, I'd like to um, to end with a story that I heard in a Dharma talk, and I haven't found it. I, I've, I've been kind of busy. I didn't find the actual reference. So I'm going to uh, give you the story, which is my memory of a Dharma talk from probably a decade ago. Um, so there was an old woman who was supporting a monk. Um, she was she built him a little hut. She was feeding him. She was, she's bringing him his sutra books, clothing him. She was really supporting his practice. And, and she thought, well, you know, he seems to have a really good pre- practice, but I think I should test him. And so she sent a lusty young woman, beautiful, lusty young woman up to, to, to visit. And she says, go, go spend a little time with him and see, you know, let's just see what happens. And then come back and tell me what happens. So the young lady goes to him. And she's just hungry for touch. And she really wants to connect to him in a physical way. And um, he stays rigidly in his Zazen posture. And he, and this is where I wish I had found it, because he had these wonderful phrases like, the mountain in wintertime remains upright, you know, and, or something like, she'd snuggle in a little bit more, try to get connected to him. And he would say, there are only ashes here. No fire can rise from this. But he was very firm in his, his resolve. 
And the young woman kind of shamefaced went down to the, the older woman who had been taking care or supporting this monk financially and told the story. And the older woman became incensed and she went up, up there and she said, you have you learned nothing that I mean, I didn't think you were going to break your vows and sleep with her, but have you learned no kindness or compassion whatsoever? I, I am not going to continue you know, supporting you. And she burned the hut and said, get off my land. And I, I love the story so much because it revealed to me my bias of if he resisted sexuality, then he was a good monk. And it opened the door to not being kind and not being warm and not caring for the foibles of the body is, is an indication of very poor practice, worse than being able to rigidly um, be self-righteous in your vows. So that's a, a, a danger and an opportunity for us to learn to be kind um, to one another in all of our weaknesses of the body. But again, by loving those weaknesses is where we can find, I think, the thing that we're looking for here, which I can't possibly articulate because you can't grasp it in words. <laughs> so I think that's where I'll end. Um, oh, you know, I'm going to hold up. Um, Hold up Deborah's. Um, Deborah, uh, two weeks ago, had a talk where she held up uh, uh, an introduction to the Fukan Zazengi. And um, I'm paraphrasing it, except for the last few lines I know I got right. It, it says, you know, if you're, if you're looking for an enlightened state, that what you must do is uh, um, arouse an attitude of great compassion and an all-encompassing vow to master concentration. You work to liberate others more so than yourself and you let go of all concerns. And you do this so that body and mind are one suchness and there is no gap between movement and stillness. So I'll let that be the last word. Thank you, friends. Are there any questions or comments or anything arising in any of your body minds? David. Good evening, Cohen. Thank you for that beautiful talk. Wow, just so many wonderful things. Marion Woodman, wow, the 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 ravished ride and all those wonderful things <laughs> connecting with that just feels so good. Um, I love bells, I love bowing, I love prostration, <laughs> I, love, I love the feeling of venerating the Buddha's feet. And I want to share an amazing thing that happened uh, with me tonight. And and uh, Wade, this is for you. You did an amazing thing. When you, when you said, we'll stand for service, I realized, oh, wow, I'm experiencing for the first time, I'm being invited to stand, whereas I've done it sometimes before, 
But before I felt like I was just sort of playing along at home. Whereas tonight, because Wade invited me with his voice to do it, I was like, no, we're doing it together. And, and some, you know, yeah. and of course, you know, it, for, for those that, both at, at home and, and elsewhere, you know, it, it, for whatever reason, one might not stand, but one, but one might do it. But we were dancing together in a way that felt new for me tonight. Um, I, you know, I, the, the, the whole challenge of hybrid kind of brings this, this body, mind issue, problem, opportunity so, so to the to the fore, and wow! So you had the experience of hearing the Han tonight, and we were I all, did. We were all in the same place. If you're mm-hmm. hearing the Han and I'm hearing the Han, we're not in different places. We are together in the Zendo. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. Anyone else? One of the functions of a big bell in a place like Green Gulch or Tassajara is that it announces to everybody in, in, in who can hear the bell, and maybe now everybody who can hear the bell in Cleveland and, and <laughs> wherever everybody is on Zoom, but also in a place like Tassajara or Green Gulch, it announces the rhythm of practice to the rocks and the trees and the birds and all being so it connects us to the physical body of the earth so uh, uh thank you for uh invoking that yeah and I, and I do want to hear your Descartes joke okay so Descartes goes into a, a restaurant and a waiter comes over and says um uh, so, Monsieur Descartes, would you would you care for an aperitif before dinner? And Descartes says, "I think not," and disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> is that a con? It is indeed. It is indeed. It's in the Blue Cliff record, I think, um, towards the back. Um, I actually would like to pick up on two things, and then I think somebody else is kind of bad. Oh, Asian, I'm sorry. Turned the wrong way. Um, Two two things from early in your talk, Ko, that I found really interesting. One was that matter and mater share the same root word. Yeah. Marion Woodman said that, but um, I was holding her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's really interesting, and that obviously speaks to just the history of misogyny that we have yeah. in the West and the way that that Judeo-Christian traditions, but not only those traditions, yeah, just really hate the body, and so the way that women get more closely associated with their bodies than men just is a is a transfer of this kind of loathing or impurity or uh, yeah. being somewhere down on some imaginary hierarchy. Um, yeah, I think that's really, and certainly we have that in the history of Buddhism, right? That's, it's not unique to the West. No. But it's, it's certainly the context we find ourselves in, and it's certainly very ingrained, I think, in that context. Yeah. 
Um, so I thought that was that was really interesting. And and also a good moment for me to reflect on my privilege, right? Mm -hmm. As as a as a cisgender man. Uh, and I the other thing I wanted to comment on was you were quoting someone else who said that, or perhaps not, <laughs> help me remember, um, that the spirit, when kind of divorced from the body, yeah. weird things can get, you know, hateful or angry or violent. And that's judgmental. And yeah, yeah. Judgmental. That was also Marion. That's something I see a she lot. She said it can become murderous. Yeah. Yeah, murderous. Um, in all the small ways that, you know, that can, non-literal ways that that can manifest. Yes, I, absolutely. I see that a lot online. And I think that's maybe something that we have a problem with online is that, not in, not in our context, I just mean the internet in general, social media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that you never see the other person. You know, maybe if we were having these arguments that people have on social media on a Zoom call instead, we might realize that they actually had a body, and yeah. that would that would anchor these this kind of like raging ego into a body and kind of help control that instead of what we're doing now, which is just lashing out at each other back and forth until things escalate. You know, yeah. who knows what point. So I hadn't thought about it that way before. And so I, I appreciated that offering. Thank you. Thank you. Um, for, uh, uh, an experience um, that I had many years ago when somebody, um, for reasons of their own, were shouting some insults at me and were uh, labeling me in ways that they considered bad. Um, and it was like across the street, they did it. And for, for whatever reason, my body turned around and walked over to him. And I just let him look at my face and my, my hurtness. I just like, I wanted, I just, my body took me over so that he could see that I was hurt. And you could just see him crumple. Um, that, that once he received my body's reaction, that wasn't what he wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, I think that our connecting with one another in a disembodied portal um, doesn't put the brakes on. That's a really good insight. Um, I believe Asian had. Okay. So, so thank you, Joe, um, for just all your thoughts on the mind-body connection. You can't hear me. I, I can hear you if I'm leaning forward like this, but if you got closer to a mic, I would be grateful. Working on it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I can wait. I'm <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to, your, your talk made me think of um, an episode or a, a time in my life where I was suffering from a psychosomatic condition. And I didn't know that, but I, I was having all kinds of throat pain and it was very hard to talk most all the time. Mm. And um, really, I was quite desperate. I kept going from doctor to doctor and nobody even could give me a sense of that this was even a thing. And my therapist didn't want to help me with it because nobody really knew what it, what it was or that there was anything wrong. 
And um, I finally found a chiropractor who said, I don't, you know, I don't really know what's going on either, but I'm willing to work with this. And, um, and we worked together to, you know, not, not really understand it, but just to alleviate some of the, some of the suffering. And I came to realize that it was a psychosomatic condition um, because of, this was long before I started practicing, but I, I was stuck with this pain and I could see, you know, over time situations that would bring it on and then situations that would alleviate mm-hmm. it and, um, coming to work with this very confusing pain, I started to understand more about what it was. And I started to understand more about myself and what I needed and times when my, you know, space or person or whatever was, was being violated. And I was reacting in this very violent way of just, you know, completely closing off my neck. And um, it took about a year and a half to really get to the bottom of it. And it still flares up from time to time, but I understand what to do about it. But it was, it was like, it probably was the beginning of my practice life to try to understand, you know, this, this experience. And um, so your, your talk just made me think about how, you know, just, we, we don't, we, we don't really understand necessarily the ways that are, that we are, you know, both, both, maybe all three, mind, body, and spirit, but we, but we sometimes get clues and reminders. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the line from, from what Deborah was saying, that the mind and body is one such, suchness. It's yeah. not, they, they, one can't d- divide their, yeah our our thoughts are constantly creating ourselves and we're we're holding ourselves in particular ways because of a thought that we're having it and i think we can we can notice this in our in our practice if you struggle with a like problem like you know your feet falling asleep or your back hurting or something and and you know just watching that over time and understand coming to understand like how that happens yeah, like uh, one of the best instructions for me in uh, Zazen was was one of the times that Reb came to Pittsburgh, and it was it was the whole weekend was about watching our stories, not and and embracing them and loving them as opposed to trying to get rid of them. And I think that once you can, like, not say, "Oh, that's a bad story. I don't want to have it." Um, you can start investigating. So, so I don't know what what you associated what, uh, with, with what was going on for you and your voice. But once you can kind of like just love the whole thing and let it speak to you, that, that's where it can unfold, I think. And, I, I, and what a wonderful way to come to practice and what um, a, a difficult experience, but what, uh, I don't know, what a, a compelling invitation. <laughs> a practice that you can unravel that with we all have we all have stories laws laws (laughs) ain't that the truth Uh uh-huh yeah thanks Mm -hmm. Hmm. well thank you friends i think that feels like the amount of time um, want people to still have tea and cookies and uh, and fellowship. Um, 
to use some old Quaker language. Uh, Thank you very much, Co.